When um, Rich asked me to speak on this, I went back to look in my files because I thought, I've definitely studied Mark 11 before, and I discovered the first time that I was studying and speaking on Mark chapter 11 was on uh, Video Church in June 2020. You may remember that was the week that we discovered one of the government's key COVID advisors while we were all staying locked up at home was off on day trips to Barnard Castle testing his eyesight and other uh, very believable excuses. And it really made me think about, going back to that time really made me think about, um, how it's very hard to respect and obey leaders who you think are not putting it into practice themselves. Now, as you will have gone through Mark's Gospel, you'll have seen that Jesus' big call in this book is to repent and believe. That is, to leave behind what's wrong and trust in him instead. And that, I realise, for many of us, well, for all of us, but for many of us particularly today might be feeling, that that is a very big call. It is a big thing to ask, to say, stop trying to cling on to the things the world says make you successful that are important, entrust your whole life to Jesus instead. And I would guess there are people here at church today for whom the cost of that is large. Uh, Living that way with God in charge of your life, abandoning cherished beliefs about the good life And doing what Jesus says to do instead, living the way Jesus says, living by faith, as Jesus describes it at the end of this passage, and trusting yourself to him. There'll be people sitting here today for whom that is a very large, big cost. But I guess what we're going to see today, I guess, I want to tell you today that what we're going to see is that unlike other people who tell you how to live and then you discover that's not how they're living themselves. Unlike that, you will not find a single fault like that in Jesus. We will see Jesus today, and I think we will want to trust him. That's what he says at the end of the passage, actually. He calls us to this deep trust in him, and so it's going to help us really repent, to leave behind wrong ways of thinking because he, with perfect integrity, can tell us the right way to think and live. That's what I think we're going to see. Here's the first thing that we see, the ruler who serves. So you've been doing Mark's Gospel. You will have clocked that Jesus' closest followers in chapter 8 of Mark uh, acknowledge that he is the king, the Messiah, the ruler of everything. And then he sets his face towards Jerusalem And his followers, they're generally amazed and even a bit defiant about that. Because they're like, we know there's a group of people who want to kill you in Jerusalem, so, you know, we'd rather you kept going with the healing and feeding people thing that we're all enjoying. And Jesus has explained again and again, he knows he is going to be rejected and killed there. That's not a surprise to him. His followers, so far, they haven't got that at all. So they are still trying to work out what they can gain by being on Jesus' sort of gravy train. And you end up with this embarrassing few chapters, to be honest. Jesus keeps saying, I'm here to serve everyone by dying for them. 
And every time he says that, the disciples are like, oh, it's interesting you've come to do that. We're just going to have a little discussion amongst ourselves about which one of us is the greatest. And Jesus is like, no, 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 let's reset. There's a bit in it, I love it, in chapter 9 where it says, sitting down, Jesus called them to him. And I thought, yeah, I bet that's how it felt. I'm just going to have a little seat here, call you round, say again, I'm actually going to give my life to serve everybody. And they're like, good one, Jesus. But could you tell us which one of us is the best? That's been a repeated pattern. And so here he is arriving in Jerusalem as the king. And he's welcomed as the one bringing back the kingdom of the father David, harking back to the best king that they ever had. That appears to be what happens in Mark 11, but did you notice a couple of strange things happening in this that deserve a closer look? Strange spy novel type intrigue at the start of the story. Go into the village and tie a colt and give this mysterious answer if anyone asks you. And I love the way it just works. They get the colt and no one ever asks anything about it or mentions it ever again. It's not a plot point in the book. It just happens. But of course that's underlining to us and to the disciples that everything that is coming is entirely under Jesus' control. Right down to what he's sitting on. We are about to see his arrest and his trial and everything else. And he makes it clear at this point, this is in my gift to do this or not to do it, down to the finest detail. Of course that makes his choices interesting. If I had this sort of power to set up situations uh, totally under my control, I think I'd be like, hey, Peter, go down to the Ferrari showroom and say, the master needs that big red one, and hope that they'd be like, okay, of course. And then I'd drive in with like ticker tape and glory. But of course, the very thing that Jesus chooses is a donkey, uh, it was kingly to ride on a never-ridden animal before, but it's, this is not a charger. It was predicted hundreds of years before the Messiah would enter on a donkey as a sign of his humility. So you see, if your question is, can we trust the one giving the orders? And I realise for many of us today that might be quite hard to do. Let me show you this. The one who has the perfect ability to organise everything as he wants to organise it, he chooses humility. He is recognised as king because he is, but he arranges it specifically so that he is not lording it over anybody, demanding recognition. He chooses humility. He chooses to appear less than he is, not more. And another strange thing, as he enters Jerusalem, people welcome him, and they quote this song from the Old Testament, from Psalm 118. They quote it, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, it's not unusual, is it, to borrow uh, songs from other places to chant in celebration. I was learning one in my family this week about the cricketer, Tom Hartley. I don't know if they're a cricket fan but a chant that's based on the Whitney Houston song, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Repeating cover versions to chant at parades is not unusual. And that's what they were doing. Choosing Psalm 118 
to repeat at this period, except if you read Psalm 118, it is not about a procession to crown a king. It was a song people sang as they carried their sacrifices up to the altar. As they took something that was going to die in their place to make them right with God. Now, who knows what the people singing understood about Jesus? I don't. But Mark knows and Jesus knew that the celebration of his kingship is going on here is because he is the king who gives his life away for the sake of those who follow him. Listen, uh, the Bible is clear. I believe it. Jesus is Lord of everything. So we should respect him and do what he says. That's a fact. But Jesus wants to do more than that, than assert his authority. He wants to sing and hear the crowd singing in Jerusalem, this eternal song of him humbling himself for the sake of others. When he chooses, he chooses humility. When he chooses, he chooses to die in our place. So when he says, yeah, you're going to have to repent and believe, repent and believe in me. He's the person who can say that, that you can trust is interested in putting you first. Repentance, as a word, I think, has a bad rap. Uh, We associate it, I think, with the misery of realising you're wrong, which is part of it. It's true. Then I think we add some stuff to that. It's whipping yourself, feeling bad for realising you're wrong, which I don't think is included. Repentance is, yes, repent from bad things, leave bad things behind, but it's about repenting towards good things. Uh, We tend to think repenting is giving up things I like to turn towards an empty, dull life without things that I like. But in Mark's gospel, repentance is turning away from the rule and domination of bad things towards the rule of a king who loves, who lures himself for your benefit, who will choose what's best for you at his own cost every time. So I do appreciate, I really do, that repentance for some people at this time is very hard. If you're battling with something you know isn't part of God's kingdom, turning away from self-righteousness or the love of money or other people's expectations, you can feel like repentance is making your life a lot more stressful. And I could just say, well, suck it up. Jesus is in charge, you aren't. That is life. But Jesus says more. He says, if you see him, you will want to repent. Because he is the leader who puts himself below us. He sets his face to do what's right for us. He chooses humility. So repent towards him. Second thing we see, the servant who judges. Here is, I think, the only part we have in the New Testament, or well in the Gospels at least, where it appears that Jesus goes completely mad and tears the place up. And um, I've heard this talk lots of times, saying, so so sometimes, you know, anger is okay, 
and you know sometimes things will be so bad that you're going to have to go mad and tear the place up. I just want to be clear, I don't think that's what we're seeing here. The New Testament says actually elsewhere, human anger does not lead to the righteous life that God requires. So even if you're angry about something that is really wrong, our angry responses are likely to be twisted and damaging and to hurt uh, us and to hurt other people. But of course, that's not true of Jesus. He has no sinful nature. He always behaved rightly. And so the right thing for him to do is to go into this religious building, vandalise it, destroy the livelihoods of the people who worked there, and then he just leaves, walks off. What's more, did you notice, it's not even just the vandalism of buildings, but the vandalism of plants. Jesus becomes the anti-gardener, the poor old fig tree, cursed on the way in in the morning and dead by evening. Well, what's going on here? Well, sometimes in our church family, um, people, the, people use this emailing system that means emails go out in my name that have not actually come from me. That's a little secret. Don't tell anyone in my church family. But someone thinks people are more likely to read it if it comes from me, which I think is uh, not my own experience. But anyway, we're getting distracted. Uh, And uh, often those emails go out with my pet peeve, apostrophes in the wrong place. I have written on a post-it and stuck it in someone else's monitor in the office. Plurals do not need apostrophes. Good thing to remember. Now, why is that annoying? Because it's important to me to be seen to have good grammar. But my name is going out attached to something without good grammar. Well, Jesus quotes this den of robbers verse from the book of Jeremiah, and the temple had a history explained in Jeremiah. It was the place people were supposed to come to meet the real God. They were supposed to step in there and think, oh, right, okay, this is what God is like. And here's the problem. It really doesn't matter if anybody thinks I have bad grammar. It matters a little bit to me. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not important. But it's very important that people know the truth about what God's like. It matters. If people are to be called to repentance, to be turned away from bad to good, It matters that they can go to the places with God's name stamped on them and see what he's like. Not some fake, self-centred version. This temple Jesus was in had actually already been destroyed once for being hypocritical like that. These people had a history of God saying, that thing with my name on it does not look like me, so it is going to be torn down. But it's been rebuilt and Jesus visits and says, this place has the exact same problem. Making money out of people's need for God's forgiveness. Setting up ways to try and keep people out. They've turned God's temple into a place where people get things for themselves. And so when God in person, Jesus, visits there, he's angry. His generosity and care, his grace, his compassion, his holiness, the thing with his name on it is not like him. A good example of that, well, it could be a tree. If you grow a tree, 
you grow it to get the fruit of that tree. If you discover your tree while looking all green and leafy actually doesn't have any of the fruit on it that you planted for, in the end, you're going to dig up that tree. And that's what's going on with the fig tree. It's a temple illustration. It has lots of leaves, but no fruit. Oh, you would have gone into the temple and thought, wow, what a bustling, busy, together environment. All of these people buying and selling, and it's the center of their community. It's all leaves. But instead of acting like a beacon to the world, advertising the God whose name is on it, it's just activity. All leaves, no fruit. So just say a religious community bears God's name, identifies itself with the God of the Bible, but in reality that community is not driven by inviting other people to know God, treating one another with grace. Uh, the community, though, is self-righteous, thinking it is better than the people outside it. But that community is in fact not self-giving and not servants of all and doesn't look to care for others. That is a temple without worship. That is a leafy tree without fruit. And God is patient and generous and forgiving. Uh, the Bible tells us his default pose is to be slow to anger and abounding in love. But when people's selfishness means he is misrepresented, he does get angry because it's important that people know the truth about what God is like. The gracious king's anger is saved for really religious hypocrisy. The gracious king's anger is saved for communities that want the benefit of God's name without being like God. And so it was, as Jesus said, this temple was thrown down. You will not find anything with the God of the Bible's name on it there today. Something named after a totally different God altogether. Now, of course, this applies itself to us. The king is real. The king is humble and kind. He is saying, whoever you are, whatever life you're leading now, however messy, he came to serve you, to give his life to buy you back, to turn you what you now have to reflect the serving, reaching God of the world. He wants to do that for anyone who will come. But he will not have people with his name, Christians, that are not like him. A Christian life that isn't open to the service of people outside the family. A church not caring about the world. That will make him angry. Why would it not? When we see in his own choices what he's like. God has replaced that temple with a different type of relationship with God. More on that in a minute. But if you believe a gentle, humble king served to pay your ransom, and you see you yourself are totally unlike that, it may be mean that you need to go back to him. The good news, he says, it's the healthy, not the healthy, you need a doctor but the sick. So he has plenty of grace to help you. Third thing that we see 
the judge who commands. Peter is surprised by the fig tree dying. And Jesus uses it as a chance to explain that now this old way of life is dead and what this new way of life looks like. Jesus says, have faith in God. Uh, That's now a sort of generic phrase that's been stolen of lots of many well-meaning people later in life to sort of be like, oh, just keep having faith. It's sort of like chin up. It's the equivalent of that, isn't it? Have faith. You know, keep going. But did you notice the story that Jesus tells is about the old mountain being thrown into the sea. I think when he says, if anyone believes, um, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, he is talking about the mountain on which the temple sat. And he's saying, uh, that is going to be thrown into the sea. That way of relating to God is done for good. Instead, therefore, verse 24 There's a different relationship with God coming. Not that way, covering up our failures with religious practice. That's being thrown into the sea. But a new and different way of radical trust in God and radical forgiveness. The two things he mentions there. Now, I guess at this church, very sound Egbert Community Church that you are, you're used to that. The religion of pleasing God with works is gone. And it is faith to be put right with God instead. But what does it look like to live that out? What does it look like for this house of God that bears God's name to reflect what God's like? instead of turning into a den of robbers. And that's what Jesus is explaining here, I think. He says it will mean radical, exciting, risky-feeling, faith-stretching prayer. We've thrown away dead religion as God's name but doesn't live in his kingdom. We've replaced it with everyday trust in God. Relating to God that every day is a dependence on him and seeing him answer prayer. That's what's replaced. Religious dead life for living dependent faith. Pleading for God's help all the time, maybe even particularly in crazy situations where you really need his help. That's the first mark of this new life after that one's thrown into the sea. You see, he said the second one, he introduces this, verse 25, means forgiving. It means saying, oh, if you're doing this radical relating to God in prayer, and at that moment realize you need to forgive someone, you forgive them. So, old old temple thrown into the sea. What's here instead? Always living a life of faith in God. And when you realize you haven't forgiven someone, forgiving them. Mark's gospel is full of little pictures of what it's going to be like to be a Christian. So there's a bit where Jesus hugs a child and he says, this is what we're all doing now. We're all about welcoming people. There's a bit where Jesus says, we're all going to fish. We're going to fish for people now. And he's saying, basically, that's the Christian life is like. We're going to now try and get other people to trust Jesus. And here's another one. What is a person, not in the old religion, but the new trust in Jesus, 
What do they look like? What's a picture of their life? Hugging a child, fishing for people, and praying whilst forgiving. And forgiving whilst praying. Obviously, being pulled into that life is a huge daily ask. It is daily repentance to leave behind that false, easy religion that doesn't show what God is like, and to trust God, ask crazy things for him independence, take an attitude of forgiveness to people who've wronged you in the world. Obviously, that is a huge ask. But remember... Who is asking? The person asking is the one you should listen to. And the person asking is the one you can trust to put you first. The king who serves. Of course, it is easy to hear Jesus' description of what it is like to really trust in him here and wriggle about and think this all seems a bit much constant dependence on God, forgiving my enemies? Can't I just do some religious stuff instead? No, because the servant judges. He is calling us to a life of service that will look crazy. Heavy dependence on God in prayer for unlikely things, forgiving our enemies, the judge commands that. Maybe you think it's hard to imagine the church or the family or the Christian who really lives like that. But let's try. Let's imagine it. Let's walk towards that. Because the one calling us to that life is the one we can really trust to put us first. Let's pray. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Lord, we really pray for your help to trust Jesus so deeply as being for us that we live out this radical life of trusting in deep dependence and forgiving when we know we need to forgive. We want our lives and our churches to not be like the temple, but rather to bear your name and look like you. So whatever obedience, whatever repentance, whatever trust we need in Jesus to do that, we pray that you'll help us have it. In Jesus' name, amen.